Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. This week, I wanted to deep dive on your amazing capital gains um, newsletter, which is a, a corollary newsletter that you go deeper into some some kind of basic finance concepts that you uh, assume in the general newsletter that people already know. But for people who want to go deeper and make sure they really understand some of these foundational concepts, you outline them. And so I thought we would do some of them today. So, so I'll ask kind of a, I'll start with a broader question that will then get us into uh, a, a few of them, which is when, when public companies are undervalued, uh, you, when an investor determines that, that a company is misproperly priced, either, you know, uh, overvalued or undervalued, what are some common reasons as to why they might think that it's, uh, that, that's, or that is mispriced or why, why it may actually mis- be mispriced? Yeah. So I think really broadly, you can look at, um, you basically want to look at two things. And what you want to argue is that both the price and the value of the company are just, they're not stationary. They change all the time. And in an ideal, you know, perfectly efficient market, every time the value changes, the price changes as well. And um, they're also, and we'll get into this a little bit later, there's also this, um, this factor of what risks you're taking when you invest in the company and who tolerates those risks and who doesn't. So, um, so like the first really broad way to categorize mispricings is to say that the two things that can happen are one, the market has some reaction that overshoots in some direction. So, um, you know, people look at zoom in mid 2021, they say, Hey, everyone's going to work from home forever and we'll all be using video conferencing and the network effects on that are really powerful. Therefore zoom to the moon and, um, you know, everything's looking great at that company. So that's the one we'll bet on. Um, so that's, that's one version where, yeah, they just, they over extrapolate good news or they over extrapolate bad news. You know, company got sued, loses half its market value. You look at previous precedents and you realize that on average companies settle for less than a tenth of whatever the headline number of the lawsuit is. And therefore it's a buy. Um, even though like you're, you're still buying after bad news or you're selling after good news, you're just betting that the market has over extrapolated. But the other one is, um, sometimes just something changes about the company. The market doesn't pick up on it. And so over time, there's this drift, this gap between the value, the value of the company and the stock price that just opens up because the value is compounding at a different rate than the stock price. And that can also go in both directions. Like the exciting one is when a company has some kind of turnaround and initially the turnaround is really messy. Like they've laid off some people, they have shut down a division, they have told their customers they're raising prices and some of the customers have walked. And then once the company gets things settled down, you realize that it's actually growing its intrinsic value at a rate much faster than the market appreciates. And you expect the, that price gap to disappear. And then the other piece on that is, um, you know, people, people look at companies where they, they were great and have moved to merely good, but the stock price still treats them as great. So, um, you know, someone who's, thinking about that right now might look at a company like Boeing and they might say, you know, Boeing, it's one of two, two to three companies that can actually design and build large commercial aircraft. I say two to three because there is Comac, the Chinese one. Um, but a lot of their, their designs are, um, from what I understand, pretty far behind the Boeing and Airbus state of the art. And also the parts that are closer to the state of the art, um, there's, 
some some evidence of industrial espionage or things like engine designs, things like stuff like that. So um, call it call it two two and a half companies that can can do this. And if Boeing has just reached the point where they're uh, really good at maximizing free cash flow and really good at buying back stock and only pretty good at building planes that don't fall apart or crash, then um, the value of Boeing's business has been hugely impaired. And if the company took some trade-off where they said they, you know, they never sit down in a board meeting and say, we have the choice between 2% higher free cash flow or a 1% lower fatality rate. Um, you know, they never actually sit down and make that choice. It's always, they always implicit, like they always explicitly prioritize, like we're going to build the safest aircraft we can. And then we're also going to make a lot of money doing it. But, um, they, they always make little incremental decisions that are going to be either that where there, there is a trade off between the safety and the economics. And if they've been taking too many of those, um, economics over safety trade offs, then, um, they can impair the value of the business, not just because, they they made what turned out to be just be an objectively bad business decision and um, should have accepted lower margins in exchange for a little bit more safety. But the the deeper problem ends up being that the people they lose are the people who were really, really good. And it's just like people, I'm sure some people go into aerospace engineering because it is, they think it's like the best way for them to make a fortune. But a lot of them go into it because they really like making things fly fast and they really like making things work well. And um, if you if you become a less appealing place for those people, then they slowly trickle out. Some of them take early retirement. Some of them end up at SpaceX. And um, and then eventually you realize you, you've lost a lot of really good human capital and you've lost that critical mass of human capital where maybe 20 years ago, if someone really liked designing planes, there just weren't that many places to go. And one of them was Boeing. And now Boeing is just not, not the place that those people go. So for the company to catch up, now it has to actually poach some really expensive engineering talent from somewhere else and get this core of people and then digest them and have them operate at a more, more accounting focused organization. Um, and it's just, it's really hard to pull that off. So I would say those are, those are the two broad categories is either price changes too much or price changes too little. And those are both broad enough to be almost meaningless. But then a third category, kind of a meta category is, um, there are just sets of risks that some people are willing to take and other people are not willing to take. So, um, I would say that we can, we can do one that makes the, the professional investors look really good. And then one that makes the retail investors look good. So on the professional side, one one case you might look at is there's a really rapidly growing company and let's say it's i don't know monster energy drinks you know they're they're constantly shipping more and more pallets well let's do uh let's do hard seltzer so hard seltzer you know really trendy actually around the same time as zoom was just like this huge contributor to the growth of a lot of alcohol companies where um a lot of their unit volumes are pretty stagnant outside of that so if you're betting on that, you are you're underwriting some fairly substantial growth, and then you you tend to just make money if the growth comes out at the pace that people expect. Like um, if some category is compounding at um, ten or twenty percent a year, it just doesn't take very long for that category to become a really really big deal financially. And uh, and again, you have the the whole um, nonlinear returns from capturing most of the brand awareness. Um, you know, White Claw is pretty much synonymous with that category, and that's that's a pretty big deal in consumer packaged goods. Like, it does mean you get a price premium. It does mean that if there's only one thing on the shelf at some store, it's probably the name brand, unless the store is deliberately targeting a lower lower spending demographic. Um, so, and then it, you know, eventually it just becomes the the ubiquitous default product. So, um, if you're betting on that, 
you want to keep a very, very close eye on how sales are tracking. You also want to know how are, how is sell in versus sell through going is often where the problem first shows up is that the company is still able to ship a lot of volume to its customers, but increasingly the customers can't get that much volume out the door. They start having to discount. Maybe the customers start saying, you know, we, we actually don't want to buy this much and the company may just adjust, but the company may also say, well, if you want to buy any next year, um, you need to buy as much as we're asking you to this year. And you know, it's a big category. We know it's a big category and it's a growing category. So you pretty much have to do what we say. Um, and what can happen is you just end up with this overshoot where if the category is actually growing at 15% a year, but unit shipments from the manufacturers are growing at 20% a year, you end up with this inventory buildup and suddenly suddenly the amount that customers can buy is actually no longer growing year over year. It's actually shrinking because they have so much inventory to work off and they've been burned by, by overbuying. And that's a case where hedge funds have a really big information advantage because they can buy the credit card data. They can buy, um, they can buy data sets that look at um, basket level transactions. So um, someone like uh, Nielsen, where they, they're actually getting lots of data directly from grocery stores, um, the hedge fund can look at the Nielsen data and actually see how unit volumes are tracking week to week. Um, they can also do a lot of the um, a lot of the channel check calls. So you find an independent grocery store, independent chain, and um, you get on a call with their their you know, some some executive there, and you ask them how how things are going in different categories and whether or not the seltzer trend is still going on. So a lot of the a lot of those professional money managers, they can ride those trends. And then as soon as the trend is slightly slowing down, they just get out and they do fine. But one disadvantage they have is that if there is some company where you are pretty convinced that within five years, it'll be much more valuable. You also think that there's going to be a bumpy path to get there. For a lot of those same funds, that's actually just an untenable trade to make. Like they need to know what's happening week to week and month to month. They need to know how the story is developing. They may believe that the stock will triple over the next three years, but if they also believe that this quarter is coming in light, they they would rather be short than long, even knowing that the general drift is in a positive direction. Um, really the popular term for this is just time arbitrage. It's that if you have a long-term time horizon, someone else has a short-term time horizon, then you should you should go after it. Um, this also There's also like a, a tax piece to this that a lot of these large funds at this point, they're pretty much optimized for investors who are not paying the top marginal tax rate, um, whether that is nonprofits and foundations and pension funds and the like, or it's overseas investors who will just have a different tax structure. So for those funds, it's totally fine to have really rapid turnover and have all of their profits in the form of short-term capital gains. But if you're an individual investor, there is just a really, really big difference between realizing short all of your profits as short-term capital gains versus realizing the profits occasionally on the longer-term capital gains rate. So um, that's that's a, a case where individual investors would actually have this, this um, advantage in coming up with a deeply researched thesis on why a company will do really well and then accepting the fact that the company may do poorly in the short term. But you know, if you're another difference is if you're an individual investor and you're actually investing money, presumably over time the amount you invest goes up. Like the fact that you're investing money means that you have saved more than you've earned presumably you're still doing that. So 
if year one of this three-year wonderful cycle, if year one is actually the bad year and the stock goes down 20%, well, your average cost has gone down because you've continued earning money and you've continued buying more of the stock. So that's another case where there can be a mispricing where both sides can actually agree on the facts and fundamentals, and then they can put on the opposite trade because they have different time horizons and different expectations. And, you know, the, the hedge fund investors, you know, they're surely like, I know they're they're annoyed that they have to be shorting good companies or buying bad companies because of these near-term effects, but that's also just where the alpha is, and that's the kind of opportunity that they are structured to and paid to find. Yeah, and you 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 had a blog post uh, in the Capital Gains titled "Real Money Investors and Everybody Else: Why Some Invest Matter More Than Others." Is there anything uh, more, more worth saying to this effect? Yeah, yeah. So real money investors would be broadly the investors who um at the limit so it is it is a spectrum of real money versus fast money, but at the limit a real money investor would be someone who plans to buy a stock and their their entire expected value from this is the dividend. So they're buying it, they're holding it indefinitely. They think of it as owning a piece of a business. So in the same way that if you if a friend of yours is opening a new um I don't know, a new food truck, you buy a piece of the food truck, like your plan is probably not, I'm going to put in, you know, I'm going to spend, buy 10% of this and pay for 10% of the startup capital. And then in two days, when people are slightly more optimistic about the food truck, because the line is longer than usual, I'm going to flip this to somebody else for a 5% gain. Like your, your plan is probably, I'm investing in this food truck and hopefully it makes money and I get some money over time, but I'm not actually trying to take advantage of every little sentiment change in the value of that asset. Um, and real money investors in the stock market, they're typically long only, they're typically unlevered. So they are, they're buying for cash. They're not borrowing money. They tend to buy in a straightforward way. So buying the underlying stock and not using swaps or stock options or anything like that. And, um, they do tend to react to these longer term forces. And then the fast money investors on the other side of the continuum, the fast money investor is trading entirely with the expectation that someone else will trade with them at a more advantageous price at some not not known but easy to estimate point in the future. So fast money ranges from market making. You know, you um, let's say a stock is trading at ten dollars. You buy it at ten. You sell it at ten dollars and a penny. You repeat that very very frequently throughout the day, and you end up making a lot of money. Um, you could also refer to a hedge fund where they're buying it at ten and they're going to sell it at eleven in. A month or two when some catalyst they expect actually plays out. Um, but the thing to think about is that what a lot of fast money investors are doing is they're actually trading with the real money investors. So, and this, like when hedge funds were smaller as a share of total equity assets under management, this was actually pretty explicit that your job as an investor at a hedge fund is to figure out what next quarter will look like for the companies you cover. And then your meta job is to figure out what will Fidelity or Capital Group or um, Franklin Templeton or whoever, like what will these big mutual funds think based on the number that you think is coming? And so a lot of the fast money approach was like actually modeling the stock, but also like actually modeling the company fundamentals, but using that as an input into a model, a behavioral model of other investors. Now, as, as hedge funds have gotten bigger, that has actually changed. So at this point, the hedge funds are the marginal price setter. They are the ones who are actually mostly determining the stock price reaction to a given change at a company. So um, it is a trickier thing where everyone at these funds is implicitly modeling all the people at other funds. 
Um, in some ways that makes the job a lot harder because everyone is, it's not like you're doing one thing and someone else is doing something else. It's you are, all of you are doing exactly the same thing and trying to understand exactly the same set of companies in exactly the same way. In other ways though, it makes it easier because what tends to happen in that case is, um, you actually spend less time thinking about valuation because you just don't have a good model for what drives valuation. Like what is it that causes the same company to trade at 15 times earnings because it's a low growth business that requires significant capital reinvestment over time. And then two years later, the same company trades at 35 times earnings because it's a stable growth business and they have this big capital moat where they've made all these investments and anyone who wants to go after their market would have to make similar investments and nobody would do that. So the business is actually safe and stable. Um, you can't really predict that kind of sentiment change other than talking to a lot of people and hoping that either they're all telling you the truth about their thought process or that you can sort of read through how they will change their mind as circumstances change. But if you hold the multiple roughly constant and then just try to predict the earnings number, then you actually have something pretty concrete to predict. And you have something where you could have an advantage at either having better data or doing more thorough channel checks or even just being better at financial modeling. Like that is that is still a relevant thing that people do is to figure out things like if this company grows 1% faster, what does that do to their margin structure? And so what does it actually mean for their earnings this quarter and for their guidance next year if growth is slightly faster than expected? Like sometimes someone's faster growth means that margins go up, like they have a lot of fixed costs and higher growth means that those fixed costs cover more revenue. But sometimes higher growth actually means worse margins. It means that they are spending more money on advertising or they're cutting prices or they're doing something else that drives that top line. And so um, being really good at just these granular details of how do things flow through the model and um, how how do changes in the company strategy affect how much cash the company requires and how much cash they will be able to return to shareholders and how do you do you know, like has management explicitly said, we'll use the cash for a buyback or we'll use the cash for acquisitions, et cetera. Like all of that kind of detailed modeling does eventually get you to um, a, it gets you to a situation where you can make um, positive expected value trades on fairly short time frames. But again, you can't, you just can't do much with valuation and over shorter time frames, valuation um, ends up like it certainly, it certainly matters, but you basically have to treat it as roughly constant and, that gets easier um, if you are at one of the many funds that is also requiring people to balance their portfolio's exposure across company size, industry, and um, and valuation so that you're not just capturing things like the market really likes growth stocks right now or the market is really, really into value or you know Japan is an unbe unbelievably trendy place to invest right now, stuff like that. Like That's not what the risk that those managers are getting paid to take. So they are pretty much required to hedge those out. So um, the result of that is that the valuation sort of doesn't matter as long as the misvaluations are not correlated in some way where trying to make this hedged trade actually ends up making the same trade two different ways and potentially losing money on both sides of it. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. The tech world turns to the Brave browser for its unbeatable privacy protections. But did you know that Brave also has a private ad platform? Brave Ads offers first-party targeting, and it's been cookie-less since day one, so you can relax while third-party tracking cookies disappear from the web. Today, millions of people turn to ad blockers to avoid being tracked and pestered online. But Brave's new ad model aligns incentives for users and advertisers. Users earn rewards for viewing ads, which they can save, spend, or pass along to their favorite creators. 
and advertisers score points for respecting user privacy, generating ROI without invasive tracking. So whether it's high-impact announcements on the new tab page or keyword-targeted ads in Brave Search, Brave offers diverse, private, future-proof ad formats for all your business goals. Join the future of advertising at brave.com slash ads. Mention MOZ when signing up for a 25% discount on your first campaign. Earlier in the podcast, you alluded to um, this idea of who takes what kind of risk um, and that we would get, get deeper into it. And you, you've written a bit about that. So why don't you un- un- unpack that a, a, bit, a bit further? Yeah, so there is, um, there is this kind of quanty way of looking at the world, which is that, and it's, I think it's accurate. Like it's not the only way to look at the world of investing, but it is an accurate model that tells you a lot, which is that every asset is basically required to produce some level of returns based on the risk entailed in holding that asset. So you can look at um, the relative returns of stocks and bonds over really long, really long periods and see stocks do better than bonds. And the naive view, which is like the view I had when I first heard about the historical returns of these different assets was like, I'm never going to do anything in bonds because stocks are obviously better. But if what you look at instead is take the annual return and divide it by the variance, you actually get a pretty consistent view that basically for every one point of um, variance, you get about 40 basis points of return. And that's pretty consistent across lots of different asset classes. And, um, you get slightly different numbers for strategies within asset classes, but it's in that general ballpark. So, um, so then, then the next question is like, where, where does that volatility come from? And you can break different assets down in terms of their exposure to different kinds of risks. So stocks are at least theoretically levered to growth, like higher economic growth does mean higher profits over time. Um, historically, weirdly, and very annoyingly for this kind of body of theory that is actually not measurably true if you actually run a regression on economic growth in countries versus market returns in those countries, like the U.S. is not not an insanely fast growing country, except in comparison to to Europe and you know Japan in the last 20 years. But the market's done really well. Um, China has grown really fast, but equity investors have not especially done well there. I think part of this is that there is a comparability issue where if you're looking at the time period where um, we have pretty robust data on equity returns, you're, you tend to be looking at a fairly recent slice of data and the high growth countries are generally countries that were just way under their potential for a really long time. Like China's GDP per capita was um, comparable to Europe for a lot of history, was probably higher than Europe at some points and a little bit lower in other points. I think probably the GDP per capita number was more sensitive to things like which places had a plague recently. But over time, like the Chinese economy was plenty productive compared to the European economy. And then Europe started completely pulling away from the rest of the world um, in the you know, initially in the Renaissance, and then it really accelerated during the Industrial Revolution. And so for, for a country to be growing fast right now, it, there either needs to be some natural resource discovery that just kicks the economy into an insanely high gear, or there needs to be some mistake that the country is recovering from. And the path of recovering from policy mistakes can be a very tricky path. So um, when you look at a country like China that had high growth or Korea in their high growth era or Japan in their high growth era, like there was, they were sort of rewriting the social contract on the fly while the economy was growing. And 
when that happens, you often find that business owners are just not not an incredibly um, sympathetic constituency, and foreign investors are an extremely unsympathetic constituency. Like if there is any time where you just have to, you have this fixed pie, and it's got to be divided, and money either goes to um, workers in China at a factory or to the American shareholders of Nike, like probably probably the factory workers are going to come out ahead in that transaction just because they are they're a lot closer to um, a lot closer to the government they're like they are they are the interest group that the government is at least ostensibly trying to represent so you yeah the the relationship there is messy but in general it is true that in the short term stocks tend to react positively to growth surprises um bonds on the other hand they tend to do better at a low growth scenario and that kind of makes sense if you just view stocks and bonds as um, different slices of risk, that there's um, there's more risk in a high growth scenario. There's just more stuff that's changing. But in a totally static scenario, um, things just don't change all that much. And so fixed income is relatively better. You have fewer opportunities to invest your capital elsewhere for high returns. So bonds do really well at times of stagnation. But where bonds do really badly is in times of high inflation. So we saw that in um, in 2022 that bonds just got destroyed. It turns out stocks are also pretty sensitive to inflation, so they got uh, they got whacked too for a while. Um, and then there are some assets that are pretty sensitive to inflation. The commodities in general are, and gold is kind of its own special asset. But with commodities, yeah, you you do again, see on average positive returns from just buying and holding a portfolio of commodities. But what you also see is that those returns are very, very concentrated in periods of inflationary global growth. So you really want to own commodities in, say, 1970s when Bretton Woods is breaking down, globalization is ramping up, and a lot of countries are rapidly growing towards the U.S. standard of living. And then um, in the 2000s, early 2000s, you really wanted to own commodities for a very similar reason. Like you, you really only had one, you had the one main country that was converging with the US, which was China, but they're such a big country and their convergence was just so energy intensive and commodity intensive that it lifted all these commodity prices a lot. But then when, when global growth slows down and when inflation slows down globally, commodities do, do really badly. And then gold is this weird special case where gold tends to outperform in every worst case scenario. Like when people are starting to think of their net worth, not in terms of what number shows up on a screen when I open an app, but in terms of like, if I had to flee the country and I needed to hire a bodyguard or like buy a vehicle in uh, in New Zealand to get to my, like at the New Zealand airport to get to my bunker, what is the form of money that would be most convenient for me? And it's probably gold bars. So if you look at really long-term returns for gold, they're not that great. But if you look at returns for gold in uh, really apocalyptic times, they are pretty good. So gold, gold ends up being this special case where it's the thing you buy to hedge just highly abstract risks of things getting really bad globally. Um, although I, my, my view on that has always been like, you're, you're actually hedging this very narrow slice of risks, which is things look bad enough that people start thinking about the collapse of civilization, but it doesn't actually get to the point where civilization collapses. And I think if you use like a long enough historical, like if you use a historically comprehensive enough risk rubric of just how bad can things get, like on a scale of one to 10, where one is low risk and 10 is maximal risk. Like, you know, stocks are at a one and bonds are at a two and gold is at a three. And then beyond that, it's like, you should, 
your your big hedge is being being the toughest warlord in your region and it really doesn't matter how much physical gold you have if things get really bad so i've always felt like gold was kind of a weird and wimpy hedge and i've never never truly understood it but um it's out there and um some people really really like it bitcoin i'm just kidding bitcoin yeah no i think yeah i was i was hoping you get to that because bitcoin you know it is it is a much more mobile form of wealth it is a form of wealth that uh sort of implies some level of social collapse but that the internet will keep working and if your model of social collapse is that um the that all major governments have lost state capacity because all the smart people go into the private sector you can totally imagine you know it's kind of a weird world to imagine you could definitely imagine a world where um, Google is still standing and the federal government is, is not just not working. Like it's probably, you know, the, the imaginative version is to, to like, to just have this dream of, you know, at some point Joe Biden gives a speech and says, Hey, it's been a really good run, but the United States of America is hereby dissolved. You're all on your own. But what actually happens in those collapses is, um, there is still a guy called the president and he still lives in a building called the White House and we still have elections and things and they just matter less and less. Like, I forget, I forget how long it was. It was like, I think it was like a 600 year period between Rome, the city of Rome getting sacked by barbarians and the last time that the Roman, that an entity calling itself the Roman Senate actually met in the city of Rome and debated things. Like, there's a long period where the formalities are retained, but the actual substance has gone away. And in that kind of world, if there are competent people, but they're just elsewhere, then maybe maybe your Wi-Fi keeps working, but the cops never show up. And so you need private security, but you could still access your Bitcoin. And presumably your Bitcoin is what you use to pay for that private security. I, I want to talk about uh, yield because you have a good uh, post on how people should be thinking about yield. Uh, there's sort of been this controversy around buybacks, but people are unclear how to think about dividends and, and things like this. Why don't you uh, unpack some of this? Yeah, sure. So from a, if we ignore taxes and transaction costs, uh, there is just minimal difference to a shareholder between um, buybacks and dividends of an equivalent dollar amount. Like either way, the company made some money and it's transferring that money to shareholders. And um, if you, let's say there's a company that is buying back 5% of its stock every year and you wish that they paid a dividend instead, you can construct a synthetic dividend and where you just sell 5% of your stock every year. And because the company is buying back 5% of the stock, you're selling 5% of the stock, your ownership stake in the company doesn't change. So it's economically identical to a scenario where the company never bought back any stock and it paid you a dividend of 5%. The one of the advantages of buybacks is just it lets it lets the investor choose whether they want a yield or whether they want to just buy and hold indefinitely. But um, and then when you when you introduce taxes, then yields become more complicated because it is still more tax efficient to do a buyback than to do a dividend. Um, if your investors, again, if your investors are paying taxes, then that's, that's better for them. But investors just like yields. And, um, and what's weird is that one of the, one of the signals that quants look at is, um, is carry, which is just, does an investment pay a positive return? And it turns out that carry is actually a positive predictor of returns. So if you buy higher yielding stuff, um, you do tend to make slightly more money over time. Um, this was like, I think originally proven out in currencies and the effect has gotten weaker there. But with currencies, the the old hypothesis was, let's say you can earn 2% on an account in US dollars and 10% on an account in Mexican pesos. 
the market is telling you that the Mexican peso will depreciate by about 8% against the dollar because there's no free lunch. But it turns out there is a free lunch and that historically it would be more like the peso is going to depreciate 7% against the dollar. So if you put your money in just the higher yielding currency at all times, you do tend to make money. Um, if you look at a long-term chart of how that strategy performs, you will find that it tends to crash. Um, used to crash pretty idiosyncratically, like Mexico goes through financial troubles in the early 90s, and everyone really wishes they hadn't been reaching for yield their peso accounts. But in 2008, um, those carry trades all pretty much collapsed at the same time, and they actually collapsed in both directions, where the currencies, the low-yielding currencies people were borrowing to fund these trades, so dollar, Swiss franc, and uh, Japanese yen, those all went straight up, and then the currencies that they invested in all went straight down. So um, it does become yet another way to earn a positive return by selling crash insurance to other investors who are going to earn, they're going to earn a lower return in most years, but 2008 won't be such a nightmare for them. Um, but yield, yield becomes really interesting at a company level because there are different, um, different kinds of signaling involved in buybacks versus paying a dividend. So if a company buys back stock, implicitly they're saying, we think our stock price is too cheap. Like we think that we would actually, we will make our shareholders better off by returning a billion dollars a year to them in the form of buybacks versus in the form of dividends. And so that's, that is, um, that is one signal, but then dividends, because investors look at dividends, because investors often fix it on dividends, management knows that at least in the U S you want to set your dividend at a level where you will almost certainly never have to cut the dividend. And companies love bragging about how long they've paid a dividend. They love bragging about how long they've been able to raise their dividend. Some companies have been raising their dividend consistently every year for decades, and they love saying that. And so that actually means that the dividend yield in that case is a credible signal about management's view of what is the worst case scenario, like the worst case plausitive, plausible scenario for their tenure as, as manager. So board, you know, Board is going to definitely have some input into the dividend. CEO is going to have some input. CFO is going to have some input. They they all want to make a decision that's going to look good for the rest of their career. Then probably a little bit longer. Like you definitely don't want to be someone who you retire on a really high note and the company instantly falls apart as soon as someone else is in charge because it either implies that the company was falling apart before and you just quit before the problems were apparent or that you were good at managing the company, but only because you had some insane supernatural ability to keep a bunch of details in your head and nobody else could do that. So you actually did a bad job of building building an institution versus just building an extension of yourself. So either way, like the yield does give you some indication of what the company thinks is a sustainable level of profitability. So investors can actually look at that and say, you know, the company's much more likely to cut its buyback than to cut its dividend. So um, we can look at the dividend as something, something a bit more real. Unfortunately, companies have also realized this and adapted to this. And so there is a thing that some companies will do where they simultaneously pay a high dividend and constantly issue stock. And what they are basically doing is um, they are taxing share, like if a company, let's say in a given year, and this is usually on a smaller scale, this is not like companies that pay a billion dollars a year in dividends, but like if in a given year, a company issues $100 million worth of stock and also pays out a $100 million dividend, what they have mostly done is um, added some tax friction and added some fees to giving shareholders in the aggregate back the money that shareholders gave them. So that's pretty bad. And companies will sometimes do that when they are um, some kind of levered financial vehicle where they can actually borrow a lot of money. They can get a good yield on their initial portfolio, but the portfolio is going to have defaults over time and those defaults will eventually impair the value of the portfolio. So if you've got a company that can 
um, let's say it can lever up and earn 10% on equity, but really it's more like you're, you're earning 10%, but every year you have two points of credit impairment. So your real earnings are 8%. Well, if they pay, if they lever up, get that 10% return on equity, pay it all out as a dividend, and then issue stock to keep making new loans. As long as they keep growing the size of their loan book, the default rate is down just because loans take a while to go bad most of the time. Um, and sometimes, sometimes they just get, like it just becomes hard for them to keep issuing stock. And as the stock gets cheaper relative to the book value of the assets, it just becomes hard to convince anyone to buy it because they don't understand why management would um, sell the stock at 70 or 80 cents on the dollar. And at that point, the company doesn't have cash flowing in. And so their fundamentals start to look more realistic and often the stock price continues to go down from there. So they end up being like a weird, weird broken momentum bet where you basically... When a, when a high yield stock becomes an insanely high yield stock, that's actually when a lot more people will be interested in shorting it. And it's often when the, the business model will fall apart. Um, another way things can go bad is that they, they literally keep expanding to the point where they have run out of all even mildly credit worthy borrowers. And at that point, um, you can actually have cases where the company makes a loan to someone and they literally do not make the first payment back. Um, this happened. There were a couple places where this happened in the junk bond market in the 1980s. Um, there was, I think, one company that was actually kind of a scam, and um, they they did a junk bond offering, and literally the first time a coupon came due, the company was in default. Um, there was another time where a company, they, they did a junk bond offering, but it turned out that they were actually, um, they, they said they were a charter airline, but they were actually a smuggling operation that used planes. And um, that one, I think the, the deal just got unwound before, and you know, nobody, the, the, the investors in that deal didn't lose anything. But um, yeah, sometimes, especially on the credit side, you could have companies that just chug along for a long time and they appear to be getting pretty good returns and then suddenly everything completely falls apart. Um, this once again did happen in crypto. It happened with a number of um, centralized lending platforms and um, I'm actually not sure exactly how things evolve with the decentralized lending platforms, but I know there were some some fireworks there too. But like on the centralized lending platform thing, um, if, you, if you have been lending to Alameda for a year and Alameda is a huge portion of your loan book. And you start hearing these rumors that Alameda is actually um, a little bit more cash sensitive than a company of their size and ostensible liquidity ought to be. Then um, maybe your temptation is, okay, we're going to pull the loan. We're not going to roll over the loan. But then you realize, hey, if we do that, we're probably not getting our money back. Like they're probably in some way insolvent. And um, meanwhile, if we let them keep borrowing and in fact lend them more money, maybe they will get back to break even. Like maybe Solana will rally after we extend them, after we replace the $1 billion loan with a $1.2 billion loan. Maybe they'll have enough money to make good on everything. And and then we can slowly reduce our exposure that way. So yeah, you sometimes have people who are sort of, uh, they're doubling down because it, it is so hard to admit that they've made just a colossal, colossal mistake. And um, that the only thing they can do about it is to actually just keep betting and just pray that somehow things work out. And you have to wonder how how many times that's happened, because um, there are there are lots of stories of rogue traders where they get caught after a huge loss. Um, there are there are far fewer stories of rogue traders who get caught after they had a loss and they made all the money back. And uh, only after someone looked at the books, did they realized that there was uh, there was something something funky going on. So. Um, you have to wonder just yeah how many how many companies have secretly impaired balance sheets and just how much of the economy is actually people desperately trying to catch up to 
desperately try to paper over bad bets they've made with with more loans and and also just how often that's a sufficiently motivating force that it actually does work out. That, that's really interesting. You you have a couple of capital gains posts on on short selling. Uh, so what is uh, uh, short sellers conspire more than uh, than than people think? Um, or, or sorry, short sellers uh, are more or short squeezes are perhaps more common than, than people think. And and also this idea that short sellers rarely conspire. Uh, and it's mostly helpful uh, w- when they do. So when you unpack things you find interesting about short sales. Yeah, so the, the short squeeze thing, um, we when we talk about short squeezes, it's usually in a very literal sense of a set of investors have borrowed shares of company, sold them. The hope is to buy them back at a lower price. But if the price goes up enough, either the risk manager at their firm tells them you need to reduce the size of this position, so they buy back stock, um, or... They get a margin call from their broker. You don't have enough collateral in your account, so you need to exit some positions, cover this one, um, or you know they just cover that position. Or um, it can even be cases where just the available supply of borrowable shares declines to the point that people actually have to cover. Um, and this this happens all the time with with short positions. Um, it is actually really annoying if you are a short seller because often the time when um, when the borrow gets really difficult and when your broker starts telling you starts sending you emails at the end of the day saying we haven't been able to locate shares to keep this short position in place so we're buying them back tomorrow morning um that's often when things are getting really exciting and the company's actually falling apart but there's a there's a broader sense in which short selling is actually pretty ubiquitous because the reason short selling goes so nonlinear is that someone has made a promise denominated in the price of an asset and they don't control the price of that asset. And sometimes to make good on that promise, they have to really, really chase whatever the thing is that they promised in terms of. And so you could think of um, a short position, like if you are chatting with a friend and your friend says, hey, you know, I'm in town for a couple of days, let's get coffee. You And you say, sure. You have a short position in one coffee meeting with your friend. And as it gets closer to the date of departure, if you are just really fixated on actually making good on that promise, then um, you you go from the point where you can fit into your schedule wherever to the point where you're actually canceling one thing and going way out of your way because you, you're going to get coffee with them at the Starbucks by the airport or whatever, but at least you got it done. So you, you covered your short position um, at a on disadvantageous terms. But it also shows up a lot in corporate M&A where, um, so my, my favorite example of this was Adobe and Figma, where I think like the simplest mental model is Adobe had a big short position in Figma. They they had not built out that kind of multiplayer browser-based um, design and mock-up tool. And that was quickly becoming a standard entry point for more design tools. And Figma was adding features and capabilities and getting closer and closer to parity with other parts of the Adobe suite. And it was just really clear to Adobe that their choices, their choices were either spend a lot of money trying to get to feature and distribution parity with Figma or spend potentially less money, probably less money on a risk-adjusted basis, just buying Figma out instead. And big companies just, they always have a short, an implicit short position in whatever their most dangerous um, challenger is. So you can look at a lot of strategic M&A as covering covering those short positions. You could also look at some some parts of government spending as covering short positions. Like U.S. has a very large, U.S. government has a very large short position in medical care. Um, a lot of medical care has been promised to a lot of important constituencies. And um, that promise is not denominated in dollars. It's not like Medicare is you get X amount of money that is in a, a special HSA and you could spend it on whatever. And if you can't afford the healthcare you need, then you're out of luck. 
it is it is a lot closer to a promise to nominated in services. And so when the cost of those services goes up, then um, the the size of that short position goes up. So that was that was another piece of short positions. But the last one is um, if you think of borrowing as shorting a currency, then it is that is mostly pointless. Like most of the time, that doesn't give you any information. If you switch from saying I have a mortgage to saying I have a pair trade where I'm long U.S. housing in one place and I'm also short the U.S. dollar, um, that's not not super action guiding or informative. But what it does explain is um, this point that I alluded to earlier, where when people did carry trades, the funding currencies, so the currency you borrow in order to buy the high, high yielding stuff, those. Um, funding currencies all went massively up during the financial crisis. And the reason for that was that everyone who is a levered investor is also someone who has a short position in dollars. And sometimes there is a short squeeze in dollars and they're just not enough dollars to go around and people realize they won't be able to borrow dollars to service debts. So they have to, they have to buy dollars. And how do you buy dollars? Well, you sell something for dollars. So um, that is like a different way of looking at a financial crisis is people are selling assets, but it's really that they're buying dollars. But what turns out to be useful about that is that one of the striking things about financial um, crises is that um, there's this line, correlations always go to one in a crisis, where two different um, two different assets tend to trade kind of kind of randomly, like there's some slight relationship, but then when things get really bad, they all move in exactly the same direction. And it turns out that you were not hedged because you were diversified, like you, you were making the same counter-crisis bet 20 different ways. Just like with the the example of carry trades all blowing up at the same time that the US stock market was crashing. Um, this was also a time when high yield bonds were crashing. This is also a time when structured products were really, really crashing. So everything was going down all at once. And um, it was because what was really going on was there was this huge bull market in dollars. And so everything denominated in dollars just mechanically went down in price. So that's that's one piece on short selling. But the other one is uh, the idea that short sellers generally do not conspire, but it's actually pretty okay to good if they do. And the thing there is whenever, um, when people write about short sellers, there's often this conspiratorial view. And it is like, it feels a little bit, you know, un-American to um, try to make money betting that something bad will happen to a company. Like, you do just have this weird inversion where everything you like, you're looking for bad news. Bad news makes you feel good if you're short and you want things to get really bad, which means you are sort of hoping that a bunch of people lose their jobs and a bunch of investors lose their money. On the other hand, you are also betting that something is overpriced and should go down in price. And um, if you are betting that the company goes to zero, you're also making this bet that this is just not a good company. Like it's not a company that ought to exist and it can't exist in its current form, in which case really the short seller bet is more like, hey, these people who are working at this company, they're not actually doing much good for the world. And it would be very inconvenient for them to switch jobs, but they should do it at some point. And it's probably good if that point happens soon. Now, um, because short sellers are just betting against good, you know, betting against happy outcomes, um, they tend to be viewed pretty negatively on average. And if you, if there's a company where it has lots of retail investors in its shareholder base, like GameStop, for example, and the people betting against those retail investors are mostly extremely rich people at big hedge funds who have really nice jobs, really nice lives, really big houses, et cetera. Um, there is, there's definitely like a class warfare element to this. And it does feel like the big funds are just conspiring to make things worse. Like they actually want GameStop to fail. And in, in just the portfolio positioning sense, yes, they do, but, um, there's just not much they can do to actually make a company fail. And, um, they're, 
they have they have a lot more scrutiny over behaviors they might engage in that would manipulate stock prices than, than retail investors do. And retail investors during the GameStop mania, they were openly saying they're trying to manipulate the stock price. Like they were they were talking about how the the market makers and options have these net short positions. They'll have to buy more GameStop as people buy more options and as the price goes up. So like they but no, as far as I know, no retail investor has actually gotten in trouble for explicitly trying to manipulate GameStop's stock price to make it go up during during that whole situation. They've gotten in trouble for other things, but not that. Um, and other people have gotten in trouble for for pumping and dumping stock prices and manipulating stock prices, but not not in that context. And so it does create this dynamic where it's really easy to imagine all of these super rich people cynically conspiring to take money from the little guy, but. These super rich people are also competing with each other. Like they, they do not care that someone on Reddit made a 20x return from YOLOing into GameStop call options at the right time. That's just not the kind of trade that they do. And um, it's the the amount of money is like very meaningful to the person who YOLOed, but not actually incredibly meaningful to anyone at Citadel. So um, they don't they don't care that much and they don't want to conspire. Like short selling is actually a case where you really want to be careful who you conspire with because it comes back to the question of borrowing the stock. So um, if you own a stock and you pipe it up to your friends and they buy it, the stock price goes up, you're in a better position. But if you're short a stock and you pipe it down to your friends and they all short a bunch of stock, the price does go down, but the cost to borrow goes up because more people are borrowing the stock. And the number of shares available to borrow also goes down because more people are borrowing the stock. So you can actually have a case where hyping your short position worsens your returns, but hyping a long position improves your returns. So the short sellers have that incentive to actually be very discreet about what they're selling short. Um, they also don't want to get squeezed. So um, and this is like, you know, exactly what happened um, with GameStop was there were some funds that had very large short positions in GameStop and other companies. And once other funds knew about it, they might say GameStop is actually just not a great company. It's a dying mall retailer and the company's not going anywhere. But we do know that someone someone has to buy a billion dollars worth of GameStop stock really, really fast. And so we're going to buy some ahead of them. We're going to sell it to them. We'll make some money doing that. So that's another reason that they they don't really want to conspire. But it is actually kind of good if um, if short sellers do, if different short sellers have done different levels of research on companies and they found different problem areas and different elements of the thesis, it's good for them to compare notes. Like for one thing, it does make the market function a little bit better if you as a large investor in a company, in this case, a large short seller, like if you know that you are one of 20 people who has exactly the same thesis and is expressing it in exactly the same way, that tells you maybe your position should not be so huge. That actually, even if you have only sold short like 1% of the stock, if um, everyone else you know is also doing the same trade and the same size, then actually 20% is short on the same thesis. And so when the stock starts going up, people have to buy a lot to cover. And so it can have that, that parabolic short squeeze situation. But also it might be the case that You've done a bunch of research on, say, CFO of this small shady company. You realize CFO has been responsible for a couple of bankruptcies before, and you know before he changed his name, he'd been arrested for fraud and whatever. And then your friend is also short the company, but it's because they bought the product, they did some teardown, and realized the product is not what it purports to be. So now instead of one piece of damaging information, you have two. And once you have two pieces, you sort of have this fact pattern of everywhere you look, this company is doing something morally questionable. And so probably in the other places you look, it'll be equally morally questionable. 
So in that case, the short sellers can kind of accelerate this process of realizing that a given company is a scam. And so that that works better for the the short theses that are actually about scams. GameStop was not a scammy short thesis. Like pretty much everyone agreed on the fundamentals of the company within reason, but they just felt like a lot of the short sellers just felt like it's overpriced, it's dying. People may overestimate how long it could stick around, but yeah, it's it was like a, a safe little short position to have and then uh, turned out to be unsafe after all. Speaking of conspiring, in, in one of your posts around why companies provide earning guidance, I think you said something like companies uh, sort of a, a collude to bro- almost act like a cartel in terms of informing the the market of what to expect. What, why do you unpack what you're, what you're doing here? Yeah, so this um, this was more common before that what companies would do, um, I hope this is the, the same point you're referencing, um, what companies used to do is they would give guidance, so they report quarterly earnings, and then they tell investors, here's roughly what to expect next quarter. So you know, we earn 49 cents a share this quarter, and we expect 50 to 52 cents a share next quarter. And so every analyst puts together their estimates, and those estimates are very much starting with, here's what management thinks is going to happen, and management's pretty well informed. So maybe the optimists say, well, they're sandbagging a little bit, it'll be like 53. And then um, other people say, well, they might be sandbagging a little bit, but we want to be cautious, so it's 51, et cetera. And then um, what will happen is, what used to happen is that towards the end of the quarter, when analysts are writing their quarterly previews, the company's investor relations team would talk to them and um, would just indicate to them that some of the estimates were a little bit too high. And, you know, and, and sometimes my impression is that it was rarely that the analysts would call someone up and say, hey, I want you to lower your estimate from 51 cents a share to 49 cents a share. But it was more like they would the investor relations people would talk to the analyst and say, hey, I notice you're modeling X amount of growth here. And I notice that you think there's a margin improvement over here. Just wanted to wanted to know where that's coming from. And if, if all of their questions are like, why are you so optimistic this quarter, then you probably want to tweak a lot of your model and get a little bit less optimistic. And then what happened is just like magic. So company has guided to a midpoint of 52 cents a share. And initially, analysts estimated 53 cents a share because they think management sandbags a little bit. But then um, miraculously, right before the earnings report, the median estimate has gone down to 51 cents a share. And then when the company reports 52 cents a share, they're able to say, we once again, beat expectations and everyone should be really proud of us. And it's starting to get to the point where you would actually know just based on the cadence of estimate changes. You would know who was getting the call first and that if one particular analyst cut their estimate for one company, you know, two weeks before the end of the quarter, that probably everyone else is going to have a similar update over over the next week or two. So um, that was that was, uh, you know, a bit of misbehavior like it is it is definitely in the in the broad genre of sandbagging. But there was um, there was information asymmetry of one the customers, uh, like the, the clients who are reading the research of whoever gets the call first, they do get a slightly better look at things. And two, anyone who is crunching the numbers on which analyst revisions are predictive of future revisions and what does this say about the stock price, like they end up with a pretty straightforward trade, which is the first time the earnings estimate changes, you, like the first time the earnings estimate gets lowered ahead of the print, you short. And then once everyone has updated their estimates, you cover and then you buy because you know that 
the company knows what the number is. The company has more or less told the analysts a slightly understated version of the number. And so whatever the company says in the next quarter is actually going to look somewhat good. And so it was sort of a redistribution of returns towards people who crunch lots of numbers and think really carefully about who who would know what and who would be doing what. And it also was like, it was sort of a an extra extra return for people who were cynical and felt like companies just didn't necessarily play by the rules. And um the SEC didn't like it. So they they fined a couple companies for for doing this a little bit too aggressively. And um it's still I so I I am not clear on how much it actually happens. And you know, it's it's not something I've been personally involved with or anything. It's um it's something that I, I picked up after the fact from one talking to people who'd worked as analysts who sometimes had these calls with investor relations that were like, your numbers are really high. And the the implication was more like your numbers are making the average consensus number look unbeatably high and we would really prefer to beat the consensus numbers so please find a reason to take your number down um, and then of course the the media coverage and the sec settlement with these companies was also also pretty good inform- a pretty good indication that it was happening um there was like people definitely will analyze which analysts are predictive and which analysts are predictive of what because you want to know who moves the stock, but you also want to know like who is actually good at their job. So your ideal situation is an analyst who is secretly very good, but they don't affect the stock price because then you just do whatever they say and you make some easy money. But the next best scenario would be you understand how information is flowing through the investment community and which which changes in consensus are going to predict future changes in the same direction such that you can bet on those. We're uh, we're just at the hour, so let's uh, let's find a stopping place here. But this was a great deep dive into some of your capital gains newsletters. I highly recommend people uh, check check them out. We'll link to them, and uh, we'll in a future episode we'll go through some of the some of the remaining ones uh, that that we haven't yet covered. Uh, Burn, always a pleasure. Until next week, always. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars, and check out Burn's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 